0: When we're born again, we get transformed by God's Spirit and His Word, and by, in the context of community, into someone who didn't exist before. Contrary to what some believe, it is not what you do as a Christian that determines who you are, it's who you are that determines what you do. Your Christian identity is established first, and then your Christian lifestyle follows accordingly. Understanding, then, your Christian identity is essential to living the Christian life because you can't live consistently in ways inconsistent with how you see yourself. You don't change by trying harder. You change by believing the truth about God and what He says about you. Yesterday, I had uh, the privilege of being at a track meet through the afternoon, the Don Boyer Invitational over Middletown. So I was hanging out with uh, runners and coaches and parents. So permit me to start this series with a very imperfect illustration. Okay. So here we go. Imagine for a moment you're a college student, and we're talking about a guy whose name is Bill. Bill's a normal student in the university, concerned about global issues global warming, and the relief efforts in Haiti, and he would like to make a difference in the world. But aside from his noble idealism, Bill is a normal guy. He sees himself as a package of ripped muscles, glands, taste buds, and sex drive. So how does Bill occupy his time, given his self-perception? Bill goes to the gym to pump up his muscles... He eats anything and everything, including Dunkin' Donuts, regardless of their nutritional value. He chases after good-looking girls, and especially one girl whose name is Sue. Sue has caught his eye. He's hot for Sue. So let's imagine that Bill is chasing after Sue on this college campus, and he's running flat out to catch up with her. The track coach sees him running. He says, hey, this guy can really run. When the track coach finally catches up with him, and imagine the track coach being a little older than Bill, so it took him a little while to catch up. He says to him, Bill, why don't you try out for the track team? Bill says, nah, looking at Sue, I'm kind of busy. But the track coach won't take no for an answer. So Bill joins the track team and discovers he was made to run. And he begins to, you know log in some time, and his habits begin to change. He goes from eating everything and anything to eating only whole natural foods. He goes from staying out all night to going to bed at 10 p.m. And he goes from reading every magazine on the shelf to reading "Runners World." <laughs> Bill started winning some track meets, and he's really good as a runner. Finally it comes time for the conference track meet. Now, all their runners arrive early, including Bill, to stretch and to warm up. There they are on the track. And guess who arrives at the track meet? Sue. And Sue is looking real fine. She's looking more beautiful than ever. And she brings Bill a little present. She brings to him a plate of sumptuous apple pie with scoops of vanilla ice cream. And she says to him, Bill, I brought this for you. You can have the apple pie and the ice cream and me. All together, we're a package deal. Now, Bill has to make a decision as to whether he's going to live in accordance with his former identity or whether he's going to make a decision to live in accordance with his new identity. And frankly, it's a hard decision for him to make. So, what Bill says to her is, Sue, no, I can't. And she says, why not? (laughs) He says, because I am a runner. The coach said I was a runner before I believed I was a runner. And now I believe that I am a runner. And I'm going to act consistent with my new identity. What has changed? Bill no longer sees himself as a bundle of physical urges. He sees himself as a runner. His understanding of his new identity has changed him. Sure, he'd love the apple pie, he'd love the ice cream and soup. But the reason he says no to these temptations is he has a new identity, a new purpose, a new destiny. I believe if your heart is open, you're going to learn some things in this study about who you really are, not who people have said you are, perhaps not what you believe yourself to be, but who God says you really are. So here we go again, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on the things above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on this earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The first words there, you have been raised with Christ, take us back to Easter. So hold your finger there in Colossians 3, And travel back with me for a moment to Luke chapter 24 because I want to reestablish the resurrection in your mind. Easter is such good news, we can't just keep it to one Sunday a year. On the very first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and they went to the tomb. The very first, very last ones at the cross were the very first ones at the tomb, the faithful women. They had seen how the men had wrapped his body, and now they wanted to do it the right way. So they'd come early in that morning to um, apply the spices to his body, to grieve over the loss. And they wondered when they were traveling, how will we roll away the stone? The guards were stationed there at the tomb, and they wondered if the guards would grant permission for the disciples to roll away the stone. But when they arrived, they realized the stone had been rolled away. God had done a miracle, both in rolling away the stone and raising forth His Son. And when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now, these women had not come to worship the risen Jesus. They had come to anoint His dead body. And the angels that were there appeared as witnesses, right? By the matter of two witnesses... It is confirmed. And the two angels said, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. The seed of the woman had crushed the head of the serpent. Our enemy was absolutely finally defeated. God had won the battle of the ages. The sting of death had been removed. And God had conquered over the power of the grave. There are those who will try to keep Jesus Christ In the grave, but Jesus Christ is risen. When they looked into that gaping hole where the stone had been, it revealed that Jesus Christ was not in the tomb. He was buried on Friday afternoon, but when the stone was rolled away, it revealed the tomb was empty. Paul wrote in his epistle to Ephesians, I want you to know the power of his mighty strength. That was at work when he raised Christ up from the dead. The very same power that raised Christ from the dead is the very same power that enables us to live the Christian life. You see, what they realized that early Sunday morning was the power of God, that Jesus Christ was raised up from the dead, that Jesus Christ was raised without sin, that Jesus Christ was raised up to life. That Jesus had been raised beyond the walls of the tomb. That Jesus Christ had been raised past the guards. That Jesus Christ had been raised to be the authority over the entire universe. And Jesus had been raised to the very right hand of God. And the angels said, he is not here. That's what we say when someone comes and someone isn't home. He is not here. That's what we say when someone calls and they aren't home, he is not here. And that's what the angel said to the women that day, he is not here, he is risen. And then he rebought them to remember these words. Remember what he said to you, verse 7, the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men. You see, when they spoke about Jesus being delivered over, Jesus was delivered over, first of all, into the hands of the guards. And then he was delivered over into the hands of the religious authorities. And then he was delivered over into the custody of Pilate. And eventually he was delivered over to the the soldiers who crucified him. The reason why he was delivered over was that Jesus Christ is the deliverer. That Jesus first must be delivered over before he could deliver. And Jesus Christ is the deliverer who can deliver you from sin. And then they remembered his words that he must be delivered and crucified and raised on the third day. And the very first skeptics there were were his own disciples. And when they heard the words of these women, now bear in mind, no woman could testify in court. And women were testifying to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They did not believe his words. They did not believe their words that day. It seemed like nonsense to them. And to some of us, it still seems like nonsense that Christ was raised from the dead. But these people, those who would witness his resurrection, later would give their entire lives to travel the globe to testify that Jesus was crucified, buried, and raised again. They would preach this na- message to the nations. So what happened between the moment when they did not believe to when they believe. They had a personal encounter experience with Jesus Christ. Peter did not believe. He believed his life was all washed up. He believed that all hope was gone, that Jesus was crucified and God was dead. But God was alive, and God appeared to Peter, who had fallen and failed, and said, Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, yes, Lord, I love you. And Peter was restored. And the one who had fallen the farthest, Peter, was restored to become the leader of the church. God poured his grace into that man's life that he became changed and transformed so that Peter declared on the day of Pentecost, men of Israel, I declare this to you, this very Jesus who did these miracles and signs and wonders, who was delivered over to your death, he is raised up from the dead. Peter got to declare that message. And so, they believe that Christ was raised up from the dead. Now applying this to the church, to us, Paul writing in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Your position is you have been raised with Christ to the newness of life. You are not the same. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. If you have your Bible open to Colossians, follow with me just for a moment as I begin to talk to you about who God says you are. Colossians chapter 1 and verse number 13. For God has rescued you from the dominion of darkness, The greatest rescue operation of all time, greater than the rescue operation in Haiti, where them were helpless and hopeless, and people came from all over the world to those trapped in houses to deliver them. God himself has rescued you from the dominion of darkness and transferred transferred you into the kingdom of his son. Your identity is you have been rescued and you have been transferred into God's kingdom. Verse 14, in whom we have redemption. Your identity is that you are redeemed by the precious blood of the Lamb. That the purchase price has been paid and it is finished. To be redeemed is to be purchased out of slavery. And sin has lost its enslaving power in your life. You are no longer a slave to sin. You are alive in Jesus Christ. Because the redemption price has been paid. In whom there is forgiveness of sins. Your sins have been forgiven. They have been blotted out. Your sins have been atoned for. Your guilt has been washed away. Your shame has been removed. You have received forgiveness in the name of Jesus Christ. And we're only beginning to talk about your identity of who you are in Christ chapter two, and verse six, it begins to talk about the fact that you are rooted in him. That is to say your life is anchored in Christ, even as the roots of a tree would go down and anchor that tree. So your life is anchored in him, rooted in him, and you're being built upon him. The foundation of your life is strong. And your life is being built upon that good foundation. And when he comes to chapter 3 in verse 1, he announces that you have been raised with Christ. He says that since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on the things above. The verb set is a is present imperative, which means a continuous, ongoing effort is required. We're to persistently seek And keep on seeking. To seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things will be added to you. To set your hearts on the things above where Christ is. Christ is no longer in the grave. Christ has been seated at the very right hand of God. For from the grave he rose up from the grave. And then he ascended to the right hand of God. And he sits now in a position of power and authority. We're called to continue and to seek after Him, where Christ is at the right hand of God. You see, there's something that God has put upon my heart. And I know, I think it's very close to His heart. Because as I travel down to the Waverly community, I see there are kids whose family situations are very broken. Many of them go to school, the Waverly School, and they come home. And sometimes no one's home. Sometimes they try to go back to the school and the teachers have to send them home. Sometimes their parents are working long hours. Sometimes there's divorce and brokenness. And there's a little playground down there at Waverly. And the the playground is also broken. And it's in my heart to take a broken down playground and turn it into a beautiful playground. The kids who come from broken lives can hear the good news of Jesus Christ. You see, already some of our kids are working in the Waverly School in the afternoons, and we have teachers who are in that school. And my dream would be that there would be a community center, a place where people can come and find love, where those who are hopeless can find the hope and the love of Jesus Christ. You say, Pastor, where did this come from? Well, I've been praying about this community for a long, long time. And as I drive beside there, I've seen this playground and it's never, lost my, never left my heart to take this playground and bring it about and make a community center. So I met with the property manager last week and he gave us favor. And we're going to meet with the community association soon and we're going to talk about bringing this thing back into life. Set your minds on the things above, not on the earthly things. The thing which we seek Depends on the set of the mind. Jack Benny, who was a comedian of a generation ago, was walking down the street when he saw an armed robber. And the armed robber said to him, your money or your life? And there was a long pause, and Jack Benny said nothing. And the robber said, well? And Benny said, give me a moment. I'm thinking about it. Little joke. To some, their life... It's all about the abundance of their possessions. Paul is saying, don't make your life's mission all about the earthly things. Not only about the material things, but also about the immaterial things like earthly honors, positions, and advancement. Paul is not suggesting here that a Christian withdraw from business or from any possibility of achievement taken to absurdity, this would mean that no Christian should ever be a doctor or a chef. The difference here is that a Christian is no longer to see these things as if they are all that matters. He is to focus his mind upon the things which are above. Your life is all about what you give your attention to, of what you concentrate on, of what you set your mind on. He is saying to set your mind on On the things which are above, where Christ is, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Now, I have a dog, and my dog's name is Schnickerdoodles, or Schnick for short. And Schnick has his mind set on one thing. Well, actually two things. The first thing that Schnick's mind is set upon is Debbie. Wherever Debbie is, Schnick is also. He's like a little shadow that is with her wherever she goes. The second thing that Schnick's mind is set upon is food. He loves food. He loves the food I'm eating. I remember one time I got back late at night from a trip. It was about midnight, and I made myself a peanut butter and honey sandwich. And I found Schnick kind of nipping at my food, trying to... I was taking a bite, and he's trying to take it from me. And I realized there's no food in his, his basket. And this morning I made myself a little omelet. And Schnick was sitting at my feet, kind of looking at me, waiting for his moment. Now, he knows he doesn't get food when he whimpers, but when I'm all done, I give him a little bit of scraps, and Snick will eat the food because his mind is set on food. You see, he has a mindset, and his mindset says, wherever there's food, I'm concentrating on it. I'm, I'm focused upon that. What do you allow your mind to focus on? What are you concentrating on? What are you fixing your attention toward? We all dream about a vacation, or we fantasize about a person, or we obsess about a situation. We all fix our minds on something. The golfers right now are setting their attention upon a green jacket down in Augusta, especially those who are in contention. The Washington Caps have set their minds upon a Stanley Cup. A student can set his mind upon a degree. An accounting student can set his mind upon a CPA, or a pre-med student upon the MCATs. A mom can set her mind upon her kids. A person can set their mind upon their business, their career. A single can set their mind upon getting married. An unemployed person can set their mind on finding work. We all set our minds on something or on someone. A reporter can set his mind upon getting the story. A politician can set his mind on getting reelected. Our president set his mind on health care reform. We all set our minds somewhere. And what he's saying here is to set your mind on the things which are above, where Christ is at the right hand of God. To set your minds on the things above, not on the earthly things. That is to say, If a student is studying accounting, to set your mind on the things above means to bring a Christian perspective to finances to your clients. If a student has set his mind upon becoming a lawyer, that is to realize that he has someone advocating for him who is ultimately the great judge, pleading his case. To set your minds on the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, of God, to elevate your desires, above the earthly desires, to the heavenly desires. Now, there's a saying that goes like this, he who is too heavenly minded is no, you know it, he who is too heavenly minded is no earthly good. But I'm going to make another saying, that the person who is the most heavenly minded is the most earthly good. You see, when you set your mind's on the things above, the things that were eternal, the things that will last, the things that matter to God, then you are of the most earthly good. For you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. A great commentary on this verse is Romans chapter six. If you can just flip back there in your Bible, hold your place in Romans in Colossians three. Romans chapter 6, the reality is that you have died to your former life. Paul wrote these words, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that God's grace may increase? You see, the argument behind this is, if we're so good at sinning and God's so good at forgiving, shouldn't we keep on sinning so that God can keep on forgiving? If I know that God will forgive me anyhow, shouldn't I just go ahead and sin, making myself look bad, but making God look good? Because the worse I look, the better God looks. There's a lot of mental gymnastics you can walk through here to justify your own sin. But notice what he says, by no means. We died to sin. How can we live in our sin any longer? The truth is, that Jesus Christ on the cross died for your sin, that you would die to your sin, that you would no longer be alive to sin, that sin would no longer have attraction to you, it would no longer draw you in, that you would die yourself to sin. There are things in my life I used to be alive to that really do not Make a responsive cord go off of them anymore. When I grew up, a great treat was to get a box of Dunkin' Donuts. And there was a Boston Cream Donut in there. I'd always asked for the Boston Cream Donut, the one with the chocolate on top and the yellow icing inside. And so, sort of, my reward for life was to partake of a Boston Cream Donut. I have died to Boston Cream Donuts. They don't attract me anymore. I've died to them. Pork products. I was raised with an abundance of pork products in my life. My mother's southern. We had biscuits and country ham often. We had sausage, bacon, scrapple. I have eaten more scrapple than you can possibly imagine. We had, for any family gathering, pork shoulder or big ham. My mom said I made a ham. When I turned 18 years old, actually I made this resolution earlier than this, and I left my home. I resolved that I would die to pork products. (laughs) To this day, you can make the most delicious pork product and present it to me, and I won't eat it. If you ever see me eating a pork product, you know I'm very close to death because I have died to pork. I have died to Boston cream donuts, and I have died to pork products. What have you died to? Scripture says we have died to our sin. Your sin is that which is most destructive in your life. Sin has a pleasure for a moment, but ultimately will destroy you. How can we live in our sins any longer? Your desires begin to change. No longer are you, like Bill, driven by the flesh, driven by the natural appetites. You may be only 19 years old, but your desires are beginning to radically change. The things that used to attract you no longer attract you. You may be 49 years old, And you've seen transformation happen in your life because sin is being put to death in your life. You have been crucified with Christ, and you no longer live, but Christ is living His life in you. We have died to sin, so how shall we live in our sins any longer? And then he gives this great illustration verse 3. Or don't you know something? Remember what I said earlier? The Christian living follows Christian learning, don't you know that when you were baptized into Christ, talking about your conversion, you were baptized into the very death of Christ, that as Christ identified with you by going to the cross, so when we identify with him, we die to our sin. Our sin was nailed to the cross, and we have died to that very sin. We have been baptized into Christ and died to our sin. Why? That in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life, a free life, a forgiven life, that the very reason why Jesus was crucified was that you might die to your sin. And the very reason why he was risen was that you may live a free, forgiven life. That's why he says, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You are concealed, if you were, in God. The most important part of you is invisible, which is Christ living in you, the hope of glory. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God, and you are secure in Christ. God God has you in his grip You are hidden with him. But notice verse 4. But when Christ, who is your life, you see the Christian's life is defined by his or her relationship to Christ. For to me, to live is Christ, Paul would say. He is the highway to happiness. He is the roadway to righteousness. And he is the pathway to peace. The life that you've longed for is the Christian life. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Now, check this out 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're talking about the second coming, the the rapture of Jesus Christ. He says these words in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 Brothers, we don't want you to be ignorant. This was, my, by the way, my daughter's favorite verse for a while. Brothers, I don't want you to be ignorant. She has three brothers, and sometimes they were pretty ignorant. So she memorized this verse that, Brothers, I don't want you to be ignorant. In fact, she bring it to their attention, like, Brothers, don't be ignorant. I don't want you to be ignorant about those who are fallen asleep. Now, that's a word for a euphemism for having passed away or died. Or grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. There are those who have no hope. Christ himself is our hope. He said, I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, you may also come. And if I go there, I'll come back for you. And here he says in verse 14, I want you to see this. We believe, this is an affirmation of faith, we believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again. We believe in Good Friday and Easter. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who fall asleep in Him. You see, the moment a person falls asleep in Jesus, they go immediately into the presence of Jesus. For to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And when we take down this uh, tent, as it were, and our clothes, we will be made like unto Him. So what he's saying is that the position of those who've fallen asleep, is with him. But then he says in verse 16, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command. We're talking about the rapture, about the second, first part of the second coming, that Jesus Christ himself is going to come back from heaven. He's in heaven right now. He's going to come back with a loud command. And he issued that loud command to Lazarus when he said, Lazarus, come forth. And Jesus is going to give this command to his bride, his church, and say, come forth. And those that are his will know his voice and respond, and they will be coming up from the earth. The dead in Christ will rise first. I had a friend of mine who's a Presbyterian pastor, and he said, you know, Pastor R, the Presbyterians are going to be first in the resurrection. And I said, well, how do you know that? Like, The Presbyterians, I don't find that in the scripture. He said, the dead in Christ will rise first. He himself, Jesus, is coming back with a loud command, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet calling God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we which are alive will be caught up with them together to be with them, with the Lord forever. And he says, encourage one another with these words. Now, your life may be tough and your life may be difficult and you may be traveling through very difficult trials right now, but Christ is your life. He is the strength of your life. He is the joy in your life. He is the peace of your life. When Christ, who is your life, appears, he's coming back. You will appear also with him in glory. Over the Easter break, or actually, over the Christmas break, I was given a, a Christmas present of a Wii. Maybe you have one at home, a Wii. And while we played the Wii, I learned how to do Wii boxing and um, Wii ski jumping. What else did I do? Um, well, we played a, a game called Mario Kart on the Wii. Now, I wasn't any good at Mario Kart because I hadn't played before. And I kept losing my life, I kept dying. And my plea was, would somebody please give me another life? Because I was dead. You see, I was out of the game. I wasn't any good. I kept losing at Mario Kart, and I didn't see those little dangers coming at me. I didn't know how those rings you could grab onto, get the points. So I kept losing, and I kept dying, and I kept pleading for another life. I pleaded for a do-over. I just wanted my life to be done over once more. Like, let me play the game just one more time, because I keep dying at this game. I think the longing of life is that we get a chance to do a do-over. It's like a mulligan in golf. I don't like the shot I just played. I want a do-over. It's like on your computer when you have to reboot, you know, like it's like all the programs aren't running. I have to reboot the whole computer. Well, I kept pleading for another life, and one of the merciful players I was playing with gave me another life. And you know what? I live the life, my second life, a little better than I lived my first life. And what he's saying to us in this text is, and here's your identity. You ready for this? If you read this text for a little while, you understand that I have been raised to a new life with Christ. That I have died to my former life, to the power of sin in my life, and my life is now hidden with Christ in God. And one glorious day, when he comes back and he calls my name, I will appear also with him in glory. God is going to say some incredibly hard things to us in this series in Colossians, and we will begin next week. But you have to understand your identity of who you really are, of what God says you are. Not what people have told you you are, but what God says about you. And when you do, It feels like your life has been born again. Pray with me, please. Father, here we are in this very room. And though we've heard the glorious message of Easter, perhaps there's a struggle inside of us that these things sound like nonsense. Perhaps this identity of being risen, of having died to our sin, of appearing with you forever in glory, may seem to us like nonsense. Father, by the working of your Holy Spirit, would your life flow into our life? Would your mind flow into our minds? We, could we begin to think differently about ourselves? Could we form this new identity of who we really are in Christ? May our desires begin to change change consistent to your heart and your desire. We realize we can be as close to you as we choose to be. And Father, here in this room, we decide to live our lives close to you. May the very mind of Christ our Savior live in us. Transform us, Lord. Conform us to your very likeness. And for those We're still undecided. We just pray, Lord Jesus, we just open our hearts to you. We ask you to come into our lives and fill our minds and our hearts and forgive us and set us free. Father, may may this journey be a good journey. May we grab hold of this eternal life that you have promised to us and the abundant life that you've given to us. Father, help us to hear and receive this song feeling like this song has been written for us. We pray in the name of Jesus.
1: Searching all these years, and the man that I saw wasn't at all who I thought he'd be. I was lost when you found me, and I was broken beyond repair. Then you came along.
0: Coincidentally, the group that wrote that song is called Third Day. And on the third day, they understood the resurrection and the new life we have in Christ. For those of you who'd like to, in just a moment, Jim Peterson and Lois and Pastor Mike are going to be leading a time of prayer to my right. Lois is facing surgery tomorrow. Uh, she has um, um, three things going on in her back requiring neurosurgery. And so she has... Um, uh, surgery with Dr. Yalaman Chili. And tomorrow we'll have surgery. So for those of you who'd like to pray, you can just join Jim and Lois and Pastor Mike for a time of prayer. But let me just close this part of our service. Father in heaven, how we thank you for the new life we have in Christ. Father, breathe that life into our souls as you breathe new life into Adam and Eve and made them living beings. Into their souls you breathe life. So breathe your life, your words, into our life that we would embrace the truth of who we truly are and live accordingly. Help us not to live below our position, but help us, Lord, to live practically in accordance with who we truly are. And for us who haven't studied this enormous book of Colossians before, open our eyes to see the truths on these pages. Teach us how to open your word Reflect upon its meanings and take them into our souls and to be changed. Father, leave us not the same these, these next few weeks. May we live the new risen life. We pray for your favor upon Lois now and the surgery that's ahead. We pray together in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you all.